It almost makes me think of like boys playing with toy soldiers. Yeah, and I think they all doing this deliberately because they want to deprive people from their own natural life. Yo, what is up? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am a sleepy Austin Hayden Smith. And I am a fully awake because it's the evening, Troy Polidori. <laughs> it is so strange. Uh, I, I I don't mind the time difference when it works like perfectly. Like This is like a perfect time for you. It's the evening for you. It's kind of like mid-morning for me. It works kind of well, you know? Yeah, I, I enjoyed recording in the morning because it's just like I have the most energy. But then yeah. you just you can't grab the words the same way in the morning when you haven't left the house yet, you know? Yeah, I never understood those writers that are like right when you're freshest in the morning that are like it's um oh god, what is his name? He wrote that book The War of Art, not the Art of War. Stephen Pressfield, who's also a, a novelist, he writes about this. He's like, you know, I write first thing in the morning. He's like, I say my prayer to the muse that I borrow from Homer's the Odyssey or whatever the fuck it is. And he, he's like, and then I sit down and I write. And I write first thing in the morning. And then I write until I start making typos. And he's like, sometimes it's three hours. Sometimes it's seven hours. Whatever it is. Once I start making like a significant amount of typos, that's when I know my brain is fried and I'm done. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. Like, I love that idea. But that's just not the way I function, bro. Like, I need to do something active to wake me up in the morning, which is like, I like to swim first thing in the morning, you know? Like, I can't just sit down and start writing. I don't know. It's just, it's not my thing. Yeah, it can't be, writing can't be the first thing you do in the day. I don't see how that's possible. No, no, no. So um, just to let you guys know, we've got a really pretty, I think, I mean, we'll see, interesting, intense episode, um, considering some world events that are going on at the moment. We have a, uh, how would we describe it? We have an Iranian citizen that is going to come on that we're going to have to tiptoe quite carefully around identity issues for just to be safe regarding this person's family and this person's position still as an Iranian citizen, but as part of the, not really of the Iranian diaspora um, in in the official sense, but I guess we could still say that there's an element in which this person is diasporic as no longer being in Iran, but still might one day go back to Iran, but not the official diaspora because not like uh, from the 79, uh, her family is still there. Um, so it's going to be a really interesting discussion. We'll talk probably less about the history of Iran. I mean, I'm sure Troy and I will ask some simple questions, but we're going to talk more about the state of politics the state of society inside Iran at the moment in light of the heightened um, military uh, U.S. Uh, interventionism and then some of the responses from Iran. Um, how else will you frame Do you think we should frame it, Troy? Yeah, I think um, just giving people what's not really available in um, the mainstream media right now, which is some firsthand accounts of what it's like to be Iranian and um, to be on the other side of U.S. politics. Yeah, and and so obviously for the sake of kind of her family um, who have had a history of run-ins, her uncle, I, she can tell you about this, was actually killed uh, during the Iranian Revolution uh, by the um, 
by the Islamic Republic. So she'll explain that a little bit more, how that all happened for basically being Marxist, actually. Um, and then her parents have also been in quite precarious positions as well. Uh, you know, pe people trying to take over her father's businesses and things like that. So it's going to be a quite intense conversation, I would imagine. Um, but fuck, for me, it's going to be really illuminating. I think I mentioned, I think I mentioned on the podcast, I've had a couple of um, connections with some Iranian friends recently over the last couple of years. I actually, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's just because being in Australia, but I have a handful of either people who are of Iranian descent or born in Iran and raised in Australia or who are actually like Iranian that I have met over the last couple of years and it has completely expanded my understanding of the world of geopolitics and really just of a region that I think growing up in America we always thought was so homogenous that it was just the Middle East. You have like maybe some sort of people who know about the difference between like Persian and Arabic language but the fact that I'm learning so much about the factions and divisions and the rich cultural differences like it's so crazy because, like, I remember that some people are like, oh, you got through people over there. They're just monsters. They're killing each other. And you're like, motherfucker, they're more diverse. There are tensions and there are differences and there's this rich tapestry of culture that it's not just a them. You can't just them. Who the fuck are them? You know, it's so diverse. So um, it's been really friggin' interesting for me to kind of flesh out this background. I don't know if you've had a similar upbringing and transformation in your knowledge as you've studied more, Troy? No, it's been the same for me. I mean, uh, in addition to just becoming older and learning a bit, bit more about the different histories in the Middle East, Arabic, and Persian world, but also making friends um, from mm. uh, those regions, people from those regions and, um, you know, academics, so people who are probably a bit more privileged than uh, the average Iranian. But um, mm. I have several friends, yeah, that are, that are from Iran and have uh, grew up there and came over to the States for for school and, and learning from their perspective has, has been pretty amazing. Definitely it's a it's a window into that world that you would not get otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, stick around for that because that is coming up in a quick second. But of course, before we do that, we want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor over at Engine Swim. I've been talking about them over the last couple of weeks. So speaking of swimming first thing in the morning, uh, Engine Swim is an athletic gear slash swim gear website. They offer discounts to Owls at Dawn listeners. If you use the promo, promo code OWLS at checkout, um, I think I mentioned in the last one, I don't know if it's capital O or without a capital O. I don't know if they both work. You can try it, but O-W-L-S, OWLS at checkout, you get 20% off. They do workout gear like tight spandexy shorts to regular shorts to tank tops and shirts, and they do water bottles and backpacks, and they also do badass swim gear. Um, they do these cool neoprene backpacks, which I got to get myself one of those because those are freaking cool. <laughs> um, they do goggles for swimmers. They do like the little brief speedo-y looking swimmers, but they're not speedo because they're engine swim. Again, talked about that issue in the last episode, but it's like when we call any sort of tissue for your nose a Kleenex, but Kleenex <laughs> is the brand. <laughs> so um, get yourself some engine swim briefs. They also do the longer ones. They do female bikinis. They have uh, Engine Bikini, which is a line that they do. So go to EngineSwim.com. They've got all kinds of badass stuff that you can check out. Um, they've got a really cool Insta campaign and stuff like that, too. You can follow their Insta page, which is pretty cool. Um, but EngineSwim.com, and then use the promo code OWLS at checkout for 20% off of all your fitness gear. Get yourself in shape. Get yourself into the pool. 
get yourself into the gym in 2020 so you can be a, an athletic. <laughs> did you just make that portmanteau? No, you told me that one last episode. Oh, did I? I already forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You said, you asked me, you said, how did you not ever coin the term oh, athletic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that would so, in one ear out the other. <laughs> yeah, another good way to engage in athlodemia is to get those <laughs> fingers a type in over to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. If you want to support owls at dawn in other ways, um, you can go to Patreon and support us there. You can get access to goodies like the monthly newsletter, which has extra sticky leaves and shitty minutes in it, as well as um, some other you know goodies in there for you. Uh, and also access to our um, patron-sponsored episodes to both submitting possible topics and voting on what will be the content of our next patron-sponsored episode, which we should add um, is coming up. So the poll now is live for the next patron-sponsored episode. So if you're a patron or want to become a patron, go over to patreon.com slash Don and uh, vote on that poll right now. Yeah. But you know what we got to do first before we do any, you know, serious shit. Austin. What do we have to do? We got to do the shitty minute. This is the part of the episode where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So Austin, what's got you down? All right. So, I mean, we got to go back to our bread and butter, which is complaining about technology uh, and how it's changed the world and how it's not like it was when I was younger. Um, when I was younger... You know, I lived, I didn't, I mean, I had a cell phone in high school, but it was one of those like big, it's like one of those big ass like car phone cell phone things. <laughs> that was the first cell phone that I ever had. It was my mom's and like, she, it was really hers. And then she like gave it to me when I first got my license and was driving. Cause she was like, I want you to be safe and I want you to have it sort of thing, you know? And then it eventually just became mine. That was my first phone. And then it was like the old, the old, like not, not TI, was it? Cause those. That's the Texas Instruments. What were they called? The the Nokia. Oh, I can't even remember what. Yeah, I just played Snake basically on it. Snake and it had the T nine texting. That's what I was thinking. The T nine texting. I missed that. That was what the was best. that? What was that? What are you talking about? What's T nine texting? I don't remember T nine. Remember where you would text, but it was only you just pushed the numbers because. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I didn't know that was to called say the T9 word texting. Oh, so it's like the same on like a um like on a phone, like a landline phone. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like text, it's that yeah. keypad, but instead of and to write the word the, you would just do like I don't know what is that eight five and then three or whatever the numbers were, and you just push eight five three and it knows that you're using the word the. Yeah, that shit was awesome. That was like some straight up Morse code level. It shit. was awesome, dude. I used to be able to text so good when I was driving. <laughs> yeah, because I just knew the keypad, you know, um, and I'd never have to look down because I just knew where to go. Um, but, okay, so before I got that shit, uh, this is my complaint. I remember you would just call your friends from your house line, and you would say something like this. Hey, dude, what's up? And they'd be like, no, man, we're going to go chill at the Irvine Spectrum on Friday. For people who don't know, the Irvine Spectrum is a place in Southern Orange County where people used to hang out, like high schoolers used to hang out, uh, because there was a movie theater there, all kinds of food places, and that's where all like the young kids would go to flirt with each other, right? And hang out mm. in shops and all kinds of things, outdoor, because it's really good weather. There's all these fountains. It was basically like, it was trying to be like the celestial kingdom, but for horny teenagers with <laughs> consumerism um, and some entertainment. And it, it was, absolutely. The streets were paved with concrete gold and beautiful water fountains. And um, you'd be like, okay, cool. Yeah, let's go to the Irvine Spectrum. And you'd be like, all right, how about we meet at 
the Baja Fresh at 7.30. And you'd be like, cool, my mom will drop me off. Or if you had a car, if you were a little older, but, you know, this is pre-driver's license for the most part, you'd be like, cool, you know, my dad will drop me off. I'll see you there. And then you call up your other friend and you're like, hey, I'm meeting up with so-and-so at 7.30 in front of Baja Fresh. Come meet us. And then you just call people. And then guess what happened? Everybody showed up at 7.30 (laughs) at the Baja Fresh. You never got a last-minute call at 736, 732, 728. Hey, uh, I'm not going to make it tonight or... I'm not going to be there or I'm running late because people just went like it was just a thing. You just did what you had arranged to do. Now let's fast forward 20 years. You don't do that anymore. Now everybody just fucking cancels plans all the time. Everybody delays things all the time. It's like our conception and how we relate to time and then what we say we're going to do has totally changed. Because of this flexibility we have with our phones, it's like we're constantly in control of temporality in the universe. You know what I mean? And I think it's weird, bro. And I'm I'm implicating myself in this. I am just as guilty as everyone. I got a buddy, TJ. Shout out to TJ. That he and I, we have canceled each other, rearranged plans on each other, shifted when we're going to hang out. It's what we do. We're like, yeah, we're going to meet up at Tuesday at this place. And then we text each other Monday. And it's like, hey, dude, can we do Wednesday instead? And it's like, yeah, Wednesday's cool. And then Wednesday comes out. Hey, bro, can we make it 7 rather than 6.30? And it's like, yeah, cool. And then at like 10 minutes before we're going to meet up, sorry, dude, I'm running 10, 15 minutes late. It's just what we do. Like, it's just what our relationship is. It's how it revolves. And it's just so interesting that this is how we relate to each other now. And I don't know that I like it. Like, I'm just... I'm inching my way towards becoming that dude in his cabin where I have no technology and I just start writing fucking letters again. And if you want to come see me, it's just an open door. Like, you just come. You don't even have to schedule because I just want to rearrange how I do social relations in time altogether. So I don't know what has happened, but it's a really interesting phenomenon. Have you noticed this, dude? Yeah, I feel this so hard, dude. I mean, and same thing as far as being, you know, self-implication here. It seems almost like there's a weird feedback loop where... It's the ability to change plans with everybody else and other people change plans on you or you change it on them that causes you to have to change it with everybody else also. <laughs> this is a weird network of just having to constantly change your plans. I, can you imagine, I was thinking the other day about being around someone you know, like a friend, right? And then just saying, hey, do you want to go get lunch right now? That would rock my fucking world. I, it, would, yeah. I would, it, would, it would destroy the plans for an entire day. To just yeah. spontaneously go to lunch for like an hour and talk about stuff. It's, yeah, you don't you don't almost have to be like, hey, can you like text me and then we'll have this conversation <laughs> that way? <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous, man. Um, and it's it's fully just the capacity um, and the ability to change plans. Like, can you imagine? There was a time, and we were still you know like young adults when this was the time when you would have to make plans days in advance and then just have to show up trusting the person that you talked to several days ago would show up at the time that you had planned. But they did. And they did. Yeah. Yeah. Like what sounds like if you, if you plan with someone to to meet with them or to do something more than a day or two in advance and you don't follow up with the text, it's like, well, you can't expect me to actually be there. (laughs) There's just no way. Dude, so like you haven't been in the dating world for the last uh, couple of years here, but like it's even worse with Tinder and Bumble and shit like that in the dating world 
because now it's like you get a text 10 minutes before and the person's like, hey, just want to make sure we're still meeting. And it's like, yeah, of course we're still meeting. But I know they have to do that because that's not normal because it's so easy to just ghost somebody. You can make plans. And I've had this happen a couple of times, like literally where you get stood up kind of a couple of times where you're like, cool, I will see you tomorrow at 430. And then you don't even hear from the person at all. And you're like, okay. Yeah, I don't know what's up up or not. (laughs) Yeah, do I show up or not? And then, like, you might even send, like, a confirmation, like, hey, just making sure we're still good. Sometimes I do, sometimes you don't. And then you might get a message a couple hours later, like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, you know, something happened. And it's like, I get it. Like, first of all, it's probably bullshit. Um, Not all the time. Maybe sometimes something does come up. But most of the time, it's probably some kind of bullshitty excuse. But then it's like, but that didn't happen before. Like, I never had anything. Like, did we go? We didn't ghost each other before. Like, yeah, sometimes you get stood up. But that was like really offensive where now i think it's like it's almost okay it's like accepted and we know it's accepted so it like breeds in this weird anxiety in us where we're constantly like is this person going to just disappear that's why i have to check check in with them and be like hey i just want to make sure i'm still meeting you there right because it's this fear like even with just a friend like hey we're still good for coffee right like the fact that you have to ask that sartre talks about this in being in nothingness it's called a negatite it symbolizes the nothing the lack when you go into a cafe and you ask a question where is pierre you're actually opening it up to the possibility that pierre might be there you're opening yourself up to the fact that he's not currently there in your phenomenological experience it's like we're constantly bathing in the negatite in the lack you know yeah you know we were talking off air before the episode started that uh about the technology of writing and the invention of writing and how it uh, changed culture in advance of you know oral tradition or the reliance upon oral tradition for everything. It's kind of the same process, right? In that when you rely upon oral tradition, you become really, really good in terms of you know memory retention. Um, but then writing, as much mm. as it's a great technology and allows you to remember things you know externally, it also means you don't have to rely upon memory anymore. And then you sort of, you know, that that muscle starts stops getting worked out and then it's no longer strong anymore. And that's happening, I think, a bit to our like uh, friendships and relationships and commitment and the desire to stay true to your word and stuff like that. It's just not considered a very big deal. And that's that kind of sucks, right? Like when you mm-hmm. tell someone you're going to do something and then it's really not that big a deal at all. If you can just you know take that back at any moment, even after you're supposed to have fulfilled you know your word in the first place. Kind of sucks. Yeah, we've be- it does suck. We've become like networked subjects in the sense of our maybe like our epistemology even, you know, that. Yeah. It it moved from like epistemology to ethics because it's involving like relationships now and not just in terms of memory. Yeah. That's really interesting. You know, all the interesting shit we've talked about on this podcast, we need to write a book, dude. Like, not like, not like some sort of serious, I mean, one day we will write a serious book together. It's going to happen. (laughs) But, but like, just collate some of the interesting shitties and stickies or topics that we've talked about into like a collection of essays, you know? Yeah. And maybe Bullshit, we could even have like, kind. yeah, 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 exactly. And we could even invite like some of our previous guests on to talk about whatever their specialty was that could be like their little essay. And, you know, just a short little 40,000 to 60,000 word thing that we publish. And I don't know. I think that'd be a good idea. It'd be fun if nothing else. Sure, Austin, just add another thing to your to-do list that you can worry about, you fucking dumbass. Yeah, I can't I can't wait to read um a random essay from 2016 where Austin talks about <laughs> how much he hates uh some random Twitter phenomenon that no one remembers anymore. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll have to like decontextualize it a little bit. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, the shitty minutes right. especially can get a little too specific. <laughs> yeah, okay. But you know what I mean. Some of the general principles, complaining about tech phenomena and things like that would be kind of fun. Maybe more just the general topics, but we could figure it out. We could universalize it. <laughs> All right, cool. So now we're going to jump into our main segment. As I mentioned, we have a very special guest on um, this week. And um, we mentioned it at the top, but just in case it feels like there's any awkwardness throughout, we are going to be keeping her identity anonymous. So um, as to not implicate her if she does end up back in Iran or her family who are currently in Iran. But um, this is... Someone who is going to be able to help us kind of work through some of the stuff that's going on. I think there's a lot of misinformation or misunderstandings about the situation, the relations between the United States and Iran, Iran's place in the broader culture, and then Iran's relations within itself that I fucking don't really know much about at all that um, she can hopefully kind of expose for us and uh, and help us think through. Plus, she is a very critical thinker. Um, so, you know, she'll be able to scrape beneath the surfaces a little bit. No pressure, by the way. <laughs> but if you would like to say hello to everybody. Hello, oh, everybody. Thanks for having me. So, yeah. So, um, I guess first thing first, what, uh, what's going on? How are you? How's the family? How are you personally? How are you dealing with the situation um, in Iran at the to moment? To be honest, not very good. To be honest, not really good. Like, uh, tragedy is happening at the moment, and... Uh, all Iranian people, we're all sad and angry. Um, and uh, I mean, it was about uh, like a two weeks ago um, when, the, when Trump uh, killed one of our greatest generals, Soleimani. And uh, I don't, I personally don't think that it is, does, if, whether or not he was a good guy or a bad guy, I mean, it's not an individual thing. Um, the thing is, that kind of a strategy that he applied, it caused too much tension in the Middle East. And the Iranian people, young generation in, particu- in particular, they're the one who's supposed to be sacrificed for their terrible strategies. Um, so, they gotta, so that means that they got to put more sanction on us, which yeah. would ruin in the future. Because yeah. um, um, there have already been quite a few sanctions that have been are, imposed. Yeah, exactly. Like... Um, when you see that, like that, that's uh, like um, like my situation in particular as international student. It's okay to say I'm a student. It's okay, okay. it doesn't matter. <laughs> there are like so many international students in Australia, but now there is a, like a huge uh, difference between our currency, real and dollar currency. Okay. So that means that I'm not able to entirely concentrate on my study, and I have to work full time at the same time to pay for you know to. Right. Um, pay for my living expenses and everything. Um, So, yeah. So this is only going to make things worse. In terms of the economic, in terms of everything, safety. So you mentioned it before. It's so interesting. I don't know if you watched the American media, but, like, there's this discourse. You said that, like, it's not that he's good or bad. It's just strategically a really, like, dangerous move because it's just going to disrupt a lot of things, cause a lot of chaos. Exactly. That was a really dangerous move. It's not about being good or bad or if he was, like, some of the people in Iran, they were like, we're happy that he got killed. Right. Like, he wasn't I a saw good that, guy. Like, people ripped like the a, posters exactly. down or something like that. Like, right. he was a, one of the, like, a core members of the government, but, and we're happy that he died. And some of the people were like, no, he was a good guy, you know? He was defending the country, was defending yeah. the boundaries of the country, and we're sad that he's died. But none of us do things that matter. The thing is, 
What about that? It's consequences. It has a terrible consequences, and that's what it matters. Yeah, I, I mean, Troy, you can, obviously, you're in the States at the moment, and I can't get away from the news media on fucking Twitter and shit like that. So, but it's been so interesting to see how the American news media has pretty much, I would say, homogeneously covered this by saying the same narrative, which is unanimously, he's a bad guy, he's an evil guy, but it was strategically bad, which is really interesting, isn't it, dude? Yeah, and you know, it's... Um it's so funny because it's obviously trying to use uh, a sort of a morally tinged message as right. a sort of way to convince people that, well, if a bad person dies, then that's that's a good outcome, right? Which, of course, yeah. the real moral concern is not about whether one person is good or bad, but what the effects are going to be of this action on millions and millions of people. Which, of course, ha- there's never any question at all about what the effects will be on um, the Iranian people of any uh, U.S. Um, intervention. And that's, if you want to talk about the moral message, it has to be that, because those are the people that are affected. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's weird, though, too, because the moral message is just assumed. It's like, this is something very weird about the Iranian strategies and the U.S. strategies. They, they always say that they're, they're in a constant battle with each other and they hate each other so much. Iranians, inside Iran. I, no, Iranian government and U.S. government. Oh, okay. They, Yeah, they, all the time they're saying that they're totally against each other, they hate each other, and they're, it's been a long time that they've been in a constant battle with each other. But the way that, uh, uh, that they apply strategies, it's like they both act against the Iranian people. It's look like they're like two like a best friends. They like mm. two bodies mm. and um yeah and and they both try to like apply the kind of strategies that is that to ruin pe- iranians people's long and generation future yeah they, like they took yeah they both against the people like trump he put sanctions on iranian people um yeah, uh, yeah. well so yeah, like I, like from from the perspective inside iran like you have you have people after the revolution who are going to be like hardcore supporters of the Islamic Republic, the government of the Islamic Republic, right? Yeah. Islamist, I guess, is the mm-hmm. word that is oftentimes used. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have people who are like dissidents who are opposed to the government, mm-hmm. right? And they all, they are, they're all obviously in the borders of the country. Like, do you, do you feel that? Like, do you know that? Like, on day-to-day, is there like an effort to control people so that everyone gets in line is there are there um, constant battles i mean i know like rohani is a reformer he's like let's bring in capitalism and sell off our domestic assets and stuff like that so um like what is it like i guess within the borders in terms of the different factions um that are kind of competing for political power and social power exactly yeah is it like a generational thing too like are what about the young people what are the, the millennials like What's their position on things? I guess your position as a millennial. <laughs> thing is, young people like they don't really. Unfortunately, they don't really care about anything much. <laughs> yeah, that, that's really. They're young sad. people. That's, that's really sad. But yeah. um, like the uh, weirdest things happen. After all, it was about like a few days ago that the airplane crash happened. Like usually my generation, they never engage with the politics and they never care about what is happening in the world. 
But after the uh, airplane crash, uh, that 170 people, I think, 176 people got killed, and they mostly were Iranian geniuses, and they were mm. all PhD students, Iranian PhD students at Toronto and Alberta University in, in Canada. After that airplane crash, like the, all the people in my generation in particle, they all got so mad, and now they're in the street in all over the city, mm. and they're chanting against the government. Wow. Because that, that was the mistake that happened yeah. by the government when they wanted to send a bomb or whatever to Iraq to uh, attack the U.S. military in Iraq. That thing, like by accident. Yeah, um, somebody accidentally they, shot down they, they the shot, plane. Yeah, shot down the plane. Yeah. And so many people got killed. And that really, that was a, like a very big tragedy. And we all sad about it and angry. It's crazy to me. I think, and that's the first time that I'm seeing that actually people in my generation they're going outside, they're chanting against the government, and they genuinely care about what is happening. Because before that, like they were like, you know, like who cares? We don't want to be engaged with it. We just wanted to escape from the country. You know, is that something that's common? It it is something very, very common. Like usually, uh, they like try to like finish their bachelor in a country and applying for the universities and abroad, that's the first thing that they're planning okay. to do. I mean, I'm not, like, mostly. Some of the people are not able to do that. Of course. But, uh, but that's something pretty common because I'm not going to say that they're careless or whatever. No, they're totally disappointed. And they, I, they think there is no way to survive. So it's better to escape. There is no way to, you know reform it or work on it there is no potential so is this is there a class issue in this as well where of course so what what is the status i mean obviously from an outside perspective there are economic sanctions so we can look at iran's gdp and their growth Mm -hmm. and unemployment levels inside iran what is it like in terms of like social hierarchy and socioeconomic classes like is there a lot of poverty and are, are these students that you're talking about the younger students are they mostly middle class are they mostly they're mostly middle class mostly and middle high class, class yes okay. and they're trying of to course, leave there is a lot of poverty and it, it's uh, and it's crazy like dramatically increasing because of the political uh, is- economic issues like the sanctions in particular that's mm. why i'm saying the sanctions is ruining the people that's why sometimes i think that trump is the terrorist of the century because mm. i can see how he is ruining the pe- people's life you know mm. yeah can we can we talk about that for a second we hear that word sanctions a lot it's a political tool uh, and a messaging tool for <laughs> people running campaigns in america but what what exactly are these sanctions and how do they affect the people rather than just punishing the government as they're supposedly intended to do? I don't think actually it's punishing the government. I think um, government can take advantage of that. That's why I, 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 I told Austin earlier that the U.S. government and Iranian government, they act like they're the two buddies because they're both doing <laughs> the same thing, but they're taking a different approach, but it has the same consequences, which is against the Iranian people. Uh, I think the sanctions isn't a really bad thing for the government, but they're the people who, who are not able to provide medicine when they're sick, who cannot travel, who cannot study abroad, who, who, or if they go into abroad, they have to struggle, like someone in my case, because even though I'm going to say that I came from the, maybe, I don't know, like a 
considering my country in a high class. Yeah. But still, I have here. I have to work in a cafe like full time to afford, you know, my life expenses. I mean, I just <clears throat> I read recently too. I'm a different country, but just to show you the strategy uh, that the United States often takes, kind of when bullying people around, is that you know Iraq voted recently in the parliament to uh, to have U.S. troops leave, and so then you know what the United States said. They're like, oh, cool. Okay, so you know that money that you have in the New York Fed and in our central bank. Yeah, if you do that, we won't let you have access to your uh, your oil account, basically. Yeah. Which is like, that's what the United States can do. If you if you have that level of power, you can cut off money supply. So some of the sanctions for people that are listening that don't know are with regards to trading partners. The United States can put pressure on other countries so that they won't trade with Iran. Which means that Iran's um, that the that the, the circulation of their economy comes to a halt because people aren't purchasing their goods, people aren't trading with them, or literally sometimes accounts where money is held is literally cut off. Like, no, you can't access the money that's in your account because we're the ones who yeah, exactly. uh, have, the, have access to the, the, the finance, right? So, you know that debt financing that you've been getting? No, no more of that. And so it literally stops the economy from working. Yeah, exactly. Like, people can buy cards, people can buy house, People cannot make plans for their life because every day that you wake up, everything is like totally different. So they don't give you that opportunity to calculate about your life, to make plans about your life. Everything just happens instantly. Everything keeps changing all the time. You know, there is yeah. not a stable situation. Plus, uh, like there's so many people like so many kids are dying because they cannot provide medicine because of these sanctions mm. and this is i think extremely concerning and it's very sad mm. and it's been happening for a long time and i don't know till when it's going to continue right yeah yeah i think it's important mm. to point and out and apparently that. it's kept getting worse and worse yeah. <laughs> i'm not really optimistic about it yeah, these kind of the, the sanctions you know sometimes are labeled by people on the left as being like economic terrorism right and it should be pointed out that these literally parallel like mafioso actions, right? <laughs> what what a nice economy there. It would be a shame if someone destroyed it, right? Um, and the rational or the sort of the supposed argument for sanctions working, you know, in terms of um, international relations and getting quote unquote bad actors um, to internally fix themselves is that it's supposed to like encourage um, uh, people within the country to um, become dissatisfied with their um, you know, bad actor government, and then remove them, right? And of course, you know, if you look at the parallel with um, mob actions, that's not what happens, right? You just, you actually internalize blame for the person placing the sanctions who has this inordinate amount of power over you. You blame them, and that actually empowers the government, the currently acting government, because then they get this sort of resentment against the foreign foe um, to help, you know, promote them, even if they aren't necessarily a legitimate government. Um, is that kind of basically what you see as going on here? Yes, exactly. I mean, that's why I always say that I think the sanction, it seems like it's something that the government can benefit from. Yeah. Kind they of can like consolidate their power. Their power yeah. yeah. Uh, by making people wounded and fragile, and they can take advantage of people's fragility. This is the very Machia Machiavellian exactly. thing too. You can exactly. you can galvanize yourself exactly. inside against an external exactly. foe, and that's a really wise way of doing it. It's not right. <clears throat> I mean, it's not morally right, but mm. 
it's a wise way of doing it. That's yeah. why I think the politicians in my country, they're so wise. They're totally aware of what they're doing. And they're doing good. <laughs> See, that's the interesting thing. They're doing good. Yeah. That's what's interesting. Yeah. Like, from the perspective of their longevity and maintaining support, yeah. the sanctions, yeah, like Troy just said, they're meant to do two things. One, sort of push for regime change, because that's what the neocons in the United States want, right? They yeah. want regime change. Well, um, we don't know. That's the thing. Oh, you don't, you don't know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's... I, because I think they're best friends. I think they're totally okay with each other. Hmm. They love a good I'm enemy. Sure. I'm not sure that if U.S. wants us to change, that's mm. how they're trying to articulate. That's how they're trying to like show people what they think in media. But we're not really sure about that hmm. because we're experiencing something totally different. Yeah, is, is there that really yeah, no, U.S. wants? That, that, that's really interesting, Troy. There's like I almost something do, pathological. Imagine Trump having coffee with my with my uh, with, with my Rahani? president and yeah. then, then like laughing at us. Seriously. Yeah, there because is. This is what we experience. Like, they're both against us. I've been thinking about this a lot with, with a lot of the military action that's going on. You know, you have all these tensions, like the United States and Russia are great enemies. But through all of this, like, there's almost like, the, it's, it's almost like it could be conceived, and I don't want to get all conspiracy theory mm -hmm. here, but it's almost like this is like a plan to gaslight all of us so that we... Now, at the cost of human lives, though, because mm. people are dying or people's economic viability gets affected. And like you say, children aren't getting access to medicine. Older people aren't getting access to health care, whatever. So, so it's at the cost of the, the populace, but the elites, like the people who make, make money off of financing, the people who make money off of uh, manufacturing weapons, the people who make money off of these... Um, these tensions mm -hmm. through shifting foreign exchange rates exactly. and bonds being purchased and exchanged, like those people aren't ultimately threatened. Mm -hmm. And so there is a sense in which it kind of, there's a, there's a pathology here, maybe, you know? Yeah, I think we can also add just, you know, I think some people would sort of poo-poo this as being naively, um, kind of like naively maybe like dramatic, but for some of these more, you know, the crazier uh, neocons, they love the little tit for tat. There's this strong, like, war is good for the soul kind of sense. You know, ever since the Soviet Union's been gone, the U.S. has been looking for a good enemy. Yeah. Um, and that they've, you know, they've constantly tried to poke at Iran and trying to make it that enemy. Um, yeah, and the so Cold think, War was really good for business. Yeah, good for business, but also there's a, there's this really strong conservative strain going back to Burke of and if you read, you know, Corey Robbins' reactionary mind, you get this sense of wanting to have this sort of animosity and antagonism with a foe, and that you can only really build yourself into being a properly honorable, you know, human being, you know, usually man, if you sort of engage in this sort of um, political, uh, you know, international tit for tat. And you know, of course, those people never actually go out and do the fighting, right? They, they want to witness yeah. it and spectate from afar. Uh, but as long as someone else is doing the fighting, it's good for the nation's soul to be engaged in this kind of, um, you know, non uh, sort of peaceful uh, interaction. Um, with the well, yeah, because if you destroy if you destroy your enemy, then you don't have any motivating factor to continue. Exactly. You don't want to destroy your enemy. Yeah. It's like a fucking Joker. He's like, I don't want to destroy. <laughs> I don't want to kill you, to Batman. Right? I need you. Exactly. There's there's something to that. Like you need to have that that dance partner. It's just, 
you need that confliction, you know, you yeah. know, that challenge to challenge you and to go in exactly. That's so <laughs> fucked up. That's so fucked up. This is so perverted. You know, it's, it's so it perverted. Yeah, lot. yeah, it costs a lot. It costs a fortune. It costs. Yeah, it, it costs a fortune. But here's the, here's the, it, it costs people's lives. It costs people's lives. It costs yeah. generations. It costs generations. Yeah, lives. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead, Troy. What were you gonna say? Yeah, you know, and I'm, we've said this before, but you know, people who think like that, it's a disease of the mind. It's a pathology. Like life brings yeah. enough conflict and antagonism in and of itself. We don't need to create it with other people to have that sort of meaningful direction in life. Like people who think like that typically are either, you know, you know, pathologically uh, obsessed with something or they just have too much fuck, fucking money. You know, like <laughs> too many of their life's problems have been solved that they need to go out and create these problems for themselves to feel like they have anything meaningful going on in life. Like that's just, it's a symptom of a diseased society. I think that people would think like that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so I guess for people who who are listening who are kind of unfamiliar, like mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit about inside some of the different groups, maybe like as much as you can, like, okay, so your family uh, has a tumultuous history with the government. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's been direct persecution, there's been indirect persecution, there have been threats over finances and like livelihood and things like that. So obviously you come from a family that has a history of like dissidents against. Yeah, but this happened like a long time ago, like okay. before I was born. But what's funny is like we still have to um, be sacrificed and deal with its consequences, you know, that caused problem in my father's business. Right. You know, like he cannot kind of like hold his business because the government wants to, you know, like take over it and they don't let you to grow they don't let you to progress they're always watching you they're always observing you or like it was about like a two month ago that my parents they wanted to go to the go to uh, a country some country in europe i'm not gonna mention it where (laughs) but and they got their tickets they went to the airport and at the end in the last minute they just realized they travel abandoned why and we don't know the reason. They didn't commit any crime. Was they like didn't they do their, anything. They put their name in the computer and it came up and it was like, no, you exactly. can't go. I mean, why? Why is, why is the reason? As a citizen, you have to be aware of, like, no. why you have, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Is like there, they don't even give you the reason. So they just confuse you. They just um, makes you wonder all the time about what did I do? <laughs> why so, this is happening? So, so like, so from a family like this that is experiencing this position in relation to the government, when somebody like Soleimani is is targeted, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, obviously you come from a family that's kind of critical, probably in some ways of the government. But at the same time, is there a sense in which even that person is like, you know what, fuck you, Trump. Like, mm-hmm. now we are going to support our government in, in a retaliation? Or is it kind of like... Yeah, it's like so disrespectful. I mean, I'm not going to say, again, if he was a good guy or the bad guy, it doesn't matter. You know? Right. Uh, what it matter, what he did, it's so disrespectful to Iranian people because, as I said earlier, it mm-hmm. caused too much tension. And that tension has a terrible consequences. Mm-hmm. And we're the, we're the one who's supposed to be sacrificed, you know? Yeah. The revenge is on us for no reason, and it's just not fair. 
You know what it reminds me of? You know how when people say that, like, the bank bailouts, it was like socialism for the rich? Mm-hmm. That's, and, 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 but we're the ones that are paying for it or footing the bill or it's going to affect the economy because there's, um, it's like trickle-down economics but in a bad way. Mm-hmm. It's almost like there's, like, trickle-down effects here. You know, it's, it's yes, mm-hmm. there are these, it, it almost makes me think of, like, boys playing with toy soldiers. Yeah, but and, I think they are doing this deliberately because they want to deprive people from their own natural right. They want to prevent people from their freedom because they don't want people to think. They just want to keep people fragile and vulnerable and take advantage of that. And I think that's all I understood and that's all I experienced. And they're doing it on purpose and they're totally aware of what they're doing. Yeah, if you can, if you can maintain yeah, chaos, exactly, yeah. exactly. then you that's become necessary and, too. And that's how they can yeah. conduct the people, you know, like by preventing them from the genuine thinking, you know, genuine mm-hmm. um, freedom. What, what has been um, Rouhani? Because I haven't heard much from him um, in the media, at least. Like, what's yeah, been his me too. response? Oh, you too? <laughs> yeah. What's, because he's the it's, fucking yeah, exactly, president. Exactly, exactly. So. And this is what I was thinking, that the leader always has to be present, you know? And what mm. happens to our leaders, you know? After the airplane crash, they were like, they, they remained in silent for like a few days, and they were like, I'm sorry, there was a mistake, oops. Yeah. And that's what really pe- got people really mad. Like, this is not your... What you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I couldn't have imagined a weirder, more absurd turn, you know, than them accidentally shooting down this airline because of human error, because of heightened tensions, and like, Troy, do you know what I mean? It's almost like it, it's like the height of absurdity. You've got this what you think is going to be this like clearly delineated these guys did this then these guys do that then these guys respond in this way then these guys respond in that way but that's not what happened because of this weird alternative outside the event that happened now it's like well fuck now what like like i feel like almost like so some people were like really supporting iran right and we're kind of like this is an act of aggression by the united states iran has a right um, to kind of retaliate, you know, maybe almost going into the opposite side, like not only was... Right. You know, if we really want to have a, like a peaceful situation, Iran is supposed to forgive something that is unforgivable. Right, right, right. So then that's the question how is... Forgiveness that's means, how forgiveness means, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. You so, have to forgive something that is unforgivable if you want a peace in a country. Yeah. And they just can't do that. They both act like, like an eight-year-old kid. Well, because you're still living by the, the dictates, the fate of the law the tit for tat, the retribution, this equals this equals this equals this. And, yeah. and if, as long as you're following like a proportional response, you have to keep going as long as you're abiding by that, by that code, right? And then you get this weird out of nowhere event that involves Ukraine. And they're like, it's not like they're involved in the military conflict. And now you get people that are like, well, we demand an apology. And it was so weird. It just felt so absurdist to me, like an apology. And then like, compensation i'm like 170 people's lives like you have an international crew of people like you said there are students on this plane like it it just felt so absurd to me do you know what i mean troy yeah and i mean it's especially eerie given that i mean um you can uh correct me on this but was it in the 80s when the u.s accidentally shot down an iranian um commercial airliner um, yeah, like acc- accidentally in air quotes. Yeah, and two hundred something people were killed, and then it just kind of yeah. was ignored. Like, well, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, 
Well, and it's almost like, what can you do? Like, that's what's so absurd about it. It's yeah, it's like, so what, absurd and tragic that you almost there is no like proportional way of dealing with it. It's not part of the game. No, it's not part of the game. That's exactly it. And then it almost like deflates in a weird way. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but it kind of deflates some of the tension because because mm. then you're not. Because then you're not focusing so much on the airstrike of the military base. Exactly. And now you're kind of thinking about this other thing, and then you're like, well, fuck, well, does that diffuse things? And then the conspiracy theorist in me says, oh, but maybe this is kind of an intentional thing, and this is good, because then it means that there won't be full-scale war, and this just allows, one, the neocons to be happy, because it just increases the theater of war in Iraq, where the United States, Russia, Israel can fight against Saudi Arabia, um, uh, uh, oh wait, I'm sorry. With Saudi Arabia, can fight against like Iran um, and then other Shia forces, and then uh, whoever the coalition is that's supporting them, Russia, China, in these proxy wars. And you know, it's Iraqi lives and uh, lives of other people who are going to get shit, you know, thrown their way because it's playing out on this like theater in Iraq or in Syria or in Yemen or whatever, you know, like. I don't know. It just seems it seems it seems too strange to me to think that I don't. I actually don't think that the governments want war. I don't think anybody wants war. I don't think the Trump government really wants full scale war. I think they just want to kind of maintain, if you will, the slow the slow perpetual process of imperialism. But it's like Wilsonian democracy call it peaceful imperialism. <laughs> but it's like it's not peaceful imperialism. But it's not full-scale war like, you know, World War One, World War Two. which I almost want, I wonder if we're in like a post-war world and we'll never really see that type of breakout of war again. But what we'll see are just these proxy wars, drone strikes, and then it's really going to be all driven by economic interests, the interests of states to maintain their, uh, the value of their bonds um, and their trade relations. But you're not going to risk full-scale war. Does, does that make any sense? I kind of rambled there for a little bit, but does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know, man. It's, it seems like, do you think that if the conditions, if the political conditions that existed in 2003 around Iraq existed now around Iran, you don't think that they would have the exact same response? Wait, say that one more like, time? The only reason it seems to me that we're not likely to engage in full-scale, on-the-ground, you know, boots-on-the-ground war is because the the political conditions that existed in 2003 don't exist now. There was a strong, pretty strong push um, by both sides of the aisle and by a lot of the public for a war in Iraq with all the ridiculous yeah. justifications that were given notwithstanding. And that just doesn't exist right now. It's the big difference between now and 2003. The public does not want to go to war with Iran. Well, um, and even, even the war in Iraq was so weird because it was basically just an invasion. It wasn't like World War II where you have multiple countries meeting at this, these various fronts, eastern fronts, western fronts, battles in the Pacific. Like, you don't, like there were these, these things that were these huge international, and I mean that like literally inter, between the nations wars. Whereas now you just have like these strange coalitions of like interpenetrating forces and and then militia and and it's just constant it's perpetual war is what they call it but it almost like the way that it's the way that it's structured is so different than at least the imagination is for how like world war 1 world war 2 um and maybe this is like 
post-World War II, post-Vietnam. I don't know what it is, but it just seems to be different. Maybe the invention of full-spectrum dominance and surveillance techniques have changed and and whatnot. And then just the fact that you don't have as many boots on the ground as you would have, say, like during the Civil War or like in the 19th century or something like that. You just don't... It, the techno, technological shift has changed things as well. But now it's like hitting strategic military sites rather than like, all right, your general and your troops are going to meet our general and our troops and we're going to go on the battlefield and we're going to settle this at this place and in this location. Now it's not about that. It's like much more strategic. Like we're going to take out your satellites. We're going to target your bunker. We're going to target these things, your technologies. And yeah, we'll target certain leaders and maybe there will be people on the ground that go in, but they're, they have like more, it's almost more specific and precise goals. I don't know if I'm just bullshitting. I'm not a fucking military strategist, but <laughs> that's what it seems. But, but that's I, what it seems like. Yeah, but I will feel like they're in the middle of the war already. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, and then and then God, what's the, there's a book I can't remember what it's called, but it's something about like like war is America's business, or I mean, there are a bunch of a bunch of books about how the American economy is driven, fueled, let's say, by its uh, military industrial <laughs> complex and. Um, the vast amount of profits that come out of that, and then of course the geopolitical interests that are related to that. But it just—it does seem to be that I don't know, man. I just don't like. I don't know that there's that there's going to be too many, if ever. At least right now, I can't see it. That like Russia is going to go to war with the U.S., China is going to go to war in cahoots. That there's going to be like this these two sides of all of these nations that go to war and they meet in the Balkans and they have it out, and then they redraw the boundaries again. You know what I mean, Troy? Yeah, I mean, we're all saying this at the brink of like climate collapse, right? So in 20, 30 years, this, all these conditions could change such that we no longer have this like global economic class that's kind of guaranteeing that we won't have these sort of um, full, full out, you know, uh, wars that end up immiserating everybody and sort of right. destroying the global economy. Like that probably won't happen on purpose, but the climate breakdown may mean that it happens on accident in a, in a sort, you know, sort of way. Hmm. Yeah, that's so, yeah, interesting. With current conditions, yeah, I think you're, you're probably right. No, I, I have a I have a question about um. So you know, both Austin and I are from uh, Southern California and Los Angeles. And there's a really big uh, Iranian population there. I don't know if it's mostly from the diaspora or you know, there's a lot of students. I know I have several friends that were um, grad students uh, from Iran that were in Los Angeles that I uh, went to school with for some time, and. What is the effect going to be for people like you that are part of the diaspora or at least, you know, outside of Iran now, uh, other than just like the economic conditions, what's it going to be like to be an Iranian person elsewhere into the, you know, in the Western world um, out there, the English speaking world primarily? What's life like for you when these sort of tensions escalate? I mean, maybe it's different in Australia than in the U.S., but I know that people, you know, people that are from um, the Middle East and, and the surrounding areas, they, you know, they stick out um, in a lot of places in America. Mm-hmm. And I know that it was really difficult for people that were um, uh, from the Middle East during 2001 through 2005 or so, you know, with uh, escalating tensions, lots of um, hate crimes and, and and racism and things like that. Is there a, a possibility of a, of a similar experience now? Is Australia different um, than the U.S. in that regard? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. And I don't want to be dramatic, uh, but it's just feeling of being stateless. Mm. It's as you're experiencing this strange feeling constantly because you don't know where is the home. 
you know, you're not at the home in the moment and no one can understand you. And whatever these tragedies happens, people think it's something normal in the Middle East, whereas it right. was never like that. It, we're in the middle of the terrible crisis and it was never like that. And it's not normal and it's not okay. And people here cannot understand. And at the same time, like personally speaking, I don't know where, where should I go, where I belong. It's a feeling, exactly feeling of being stateless because nowhere accepts you. You can't can be safe anywhere. Uh, and it's a really strange feeling. And that makes you like kind of like sad and um, a little bit depressed because you don't have a home and you keep looking for the home and, and you can't find it. And you don't even have that much opportunity to even build your own home. And this is really strange. This is a really strange feeling. Mm. Um, is there, would you be, because I know you've talked about like part of the reason you wanted to stay anonymous is because there's a chance that you could go back home. Yes, exactly. Because I, I yeah, of course, I love my country. I really love to go back home. I miss my culture. I miss my family and my friends. And it's been more than two years that I haven't seen them. I, didn't, I never get a chance to go back and visit my family. And, uh, yeah, but at the same time, whenever I booked the ticket to go back country, I was like, oh my God, whatever like shit happens, like it's not a really safe way <laughs> to go back home because if they travel abandon my parents for no reason in the last minute, yeah. you know, what if they do the same to me and yeah. I cannot jeopardize whole my future? I study hard, you know, I worked hard and I don't want to, you know, uh, yeah. lose everything that I for for so long I mean is know? there is there a, you know we don't have to get too far into it but is there like a, a legitimate sense in which because the fear is is that if you go there then you might not be able to leave I mean is there a sense in which you might yeah someone like me what would not be able to leave there not like, be able to leave, of, yeah. yeah because of my major about what I want to do as a woman who doesn't believe in these rules and regulations uh, it's not a really safe place for me so and I don't have a future in my country so that's why I got disappointed like the other people in my generation and I decided to continue and take my education further and study in broad but I'm disappointed here as well because, yeah. yeah and this is a very strange feeling because you don't have any position hmm. there is no any platform there is no any potential for you to work you know and it kind of like ruin your confidence. Do you experience, like you said, you know, pe people kind of look at you a certain way. I mean, do you experience, I guess you could call it a type of racism. Of course. Here, of here course. in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> of course, a lot. Because <laughs> they have, a, for people listening, they, there's a derogatory term that's sometimes used, I guess, for like immigrants that came in in like the 50s and 60s. It's WOG. Yeah. But sometimes it's just applied to all brown people as yeah. well. Like, so there is, there is a, a heavy stream of um, immigrant, anti-immigrant sentiment here. And so Australia, as an American ally, I would imagine, is Iran sometimes viewed as the bad guy. Yeah. I mean, and not just particularly about, like, a bear, being Iranian or Persian. Like, people might see you in the street with your black hair and be like, oh, you know. Mm. Oh. There was a, yeah, there's, there's an area for people who don't know that's um, a little west of where we are now. It's called Parramatta. And Parramatta is heavy populated by 
um, people from Asia and the Middle East, North Africa, um, and just all over the African continent. And um, there was a, a hate crime there recently where a man walked into a cafe mm-hmm. and saw a woman in a hijab and started beating the shit out of her. <laughs> you know? And like, and she was pregnant uh, on top of it as well. Um, But you know, this was just some fucking asshole, racist Australian dude. And I'm not trying to like say that that's that everybody is like that. And if you come here, you should be careful and be on guard because you will get jumped. But the fact is, is when I'm in a cafe, I never worry that somebody's gonna come in and beat the shit out of me. Exactly, and make a difference. I mean, whenever I mean, I'm like. Um, even in a work, I mean, I've been, it's been like more than two years that I was working in hospitality here in Australia. And just because, you know, you have a black hair, like sometimes some places they might not hire you. And if they hire you, they expect you to work more mm. and they allow themselves to be disrespectful to you, you know? Mm. And for, you know, like, yeah, it's like legalized it doesn't racism. matter how you behave no. or what you do. This is a kind of the perception that yeah. you make at the first instance whenever you meet them. And they, you know, they're. See, this is the stuff. It's, it's so crazy to think about how it's directly causally related to economic decisions and geopolitical decisions. So there's a way that you can create a causal chain between economic sanctions and these anxieties that you are experiencing, which. I think it's so important because the effects then of the economic sanctions, it's not just on balance sheets. It's not just affecting GDP numbers. It's not just affecting imports and exports, but economic theory, finance stations, like on the news and stuff like that, they look at, oh, the sanctions are going to affect the economy in this way. But this is why someone like Wolfgang Streck, for example, always talks about how we need to, to use the word socioeconomic. It's socioeconomic, you know? Yeah. It's, it's not just numbers and balance sheets and GDP things. I mean, we're talking about psychological and social effects that, um, that go f- far further afield than just even what like we, we typically see in the numbers that are reported. And even when we say, like, oh, you know, the people in Iran are going to be affected, we have to say, I mean, there are millions and millions and millions of people that are not in the border of Iran that are still being affected, not just, like, as a, as a, like an ethereal effect, like, oh, it psychologically bothers me. No, but, like, material in your pocketbook, mm-hmm. it affects you, it affects them what you can do for work, and then simultaneously there are psychological effects, and then it affects how other people perceive you and how they relate to you because of these cross-cultural alliances, exactly. and it's just this massive network of, of issues. Yeah, it was, uh, like, even it affects your education as well. It was about, I think it was in September, August, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, like, when it was, but the University of Melbourne, they announced that that Iranian university who wants to study in this particular majors are not allowed to take their education further in this university. I mean, what the hell so, is so that Iranian, mean? Iranian students couldn't yeah. come. Was this because of um, things that the United States did where they said around, like, was, was it related? Probably. Probably. <laughs> huh. Yeah. And this is just not fair to the people, you know. That's why I always say is the people are the one who always has to be sacrificed because of these wrong strategies. Let, let me ask you this. What do you think then? So we're talking a lot about like the problems and some of the frustrations and the anxieties and the effects that it's have on, had on you and, and people that you know and family. Like what do you think this means moving forward though? So you're like, like do, the people, do the people want regime change? I mean some people do obviously and some people don't. 
what does that look like? What is having somebody like Rouhani in there who is more of a reformer, who's open up domestic assets to international investment? And like, what is, what does it look like? Like, I, what do you think? Yeah. I think it takes a lot of time. It's just not that easy. I think we need a revolution. And, but it's not that easy. I mean, who's going to be replaced? You know, we need to think about it. Mm. Um, Are there, is there a movement, like a working class movement that is building in Iran right now? Or is it kind of, doesn't really seem very... It, no, it doesn't really seem happening. Um, the good thing is that I think that the recent protests that happened a few days ago in Iran, it starts from the students, university students. And I think that's a good thing because they don't talking about the Shah and they don't, I mean, they're not, not praising the Shah and they, you know, and they're not praising the government, Iranian government, Islamic Republic government either. Yeah. They're, they're tr trying to like find a balance in between, you know, like, um, yeah. Oh, here, here's the thing that I wonder, and my fear is that you get a bunch of young people who are exposed to Western ideas and Western habits of consumption, and and then what ends up replacing the current government is that you just get, you know, America 2.0 or something like that. You get some sort of neoliberal, neoliberalized economy in 50 years from now, you know, uh, Iran looks like Dubai, <laughs> you know, or Azerbaijan or something like that, you know, like that's, because it seems like if there's no working class power, no. if there's no working class movement, then yeah. what's going to prevent global finance from just coming up, coming in and intensifying the reform towards neoliberalization. It's just going to be even worse, you know? And so there's a sense in which the Islamic Republic is kind of keeping that at bay, right? It's kind of kind of protecting and insulating. Because I heard that one of the slogans during 1979 was neither East nor West. And this was mm -hmm. the time when the Soviet Union was around. So neither East nor West meant we don't want to be um, subject to, we don't want to be like a satellite state for the USSR, but then we also don't want to maintain our... That's what is happening right now. That that's I what's happening that, yeah, now, too. Yeah, that's, that's why I said that the process starts from the university students. Yeah. And they neither care about the West nor East. They're trying to, like, find a balance in between. Hmm. And I'm so happy that at least um, what I'm really optimistic about, that people don't have fear anymore. Um, because fear is like a destructive feeling. You know, mm. that might prevent you from the thinking or acting. The negative and negative people are Exactly. And people yeah. are so mad and they don't care about their fears anymore. And I think that is a good thing that is happening. Mm. Like, we're not going to go through all of that anymore. Like, we should do something. We need to take action. And that's why, why we lack. Mm. And would you, in taking action, it necessitates that you're there, though, right? Like you have to be present. You have to be yeah, in exactly. Iran. Yeah, you have to be engaged. You have to be. Well, and you have to be physically there too. Like yeah, you have to exactly. become the new politicians. Exactly. You have to build the working class movement or exactly. whatever. You have to be there. Yeah, and it's so hard because the it seems that through these sanctions, through these geopolitical games that the governments are currently playing, it almost yeah. makes it sure that you can't do that. Yeah, it squashes any sort of 
potency and in creativity and novelty and rebellion and dissidence and things like that because it keeps people precarious. Yeah. It keeps people in states where they're unsure, where they don't have potency, where they don't have power, where people have to leave the country. You know, the people that they don't want in the country, they can leave the country because that's actually good for us yeah. because that actually maintains our stability even further, right? And then the people in our country, we can keep them kind of precarious because then, you know, they still are dependent upon us being a consolidated power. So it almost seems like this not seems like the structures that are in place are meant they're in place the way they are so they can maintain their power right and so it's really difficult to come from the outside or to erupt even from within to offer something new does that, exactly. does that make any sense yeah, totally. yeah Troy do you know what I mean yeah yeah and it's a it's a totally different uh, set of circumstances but similar formal playbook um, even in the United States right we uh, certainly life in the US is it's not the same as life in Iran for you know individual citizens but um, you're kept in a precarious state when you have $70,000 in student debt and, you know, you get sick and now you have $30,000 in medical debt that you can't pay and people harassing you um, from collections companies for money and trying to work and go to school and deal with your family and everything. It's, you don't want to go out and um, learn about politics and figure out who to vote for and who's going to actually uh, make a better world and serve your material interests and all that kind of stuff, right? You know, there's a lot of research into insecurities studies that actually deals with this, like the relationship between security and insecurity and where the notion of security comes from and um, and and how it's kind of changed throughout the years between sort of like internal peace, um, you know, in relation to like the divine, God is your assurance of security, so you shouldn't be secure in your own abilities, and then the state comes along and it's like, Oh, don't worry, we'll be the ones who keep you secure. And then you sort of like seed responsibility. That's like the social contract Hobbesian idea. You yeah. seed your individual responsibility to the state. They're going to provide your security. Now they're going to take care of you from foreign invaders and stuff like that. But there's something interesting almost about this like process of giving up elements of um, self-reliance. And I don't want to get too like too too bogged down in the, the language of, of self reliance and self-determination but there's a sense in which states do they do take a type of power or they do take a type of potency yeah. especially liberal states because that's that's how they're structured they're structured precisely to be that external mechanism that takes from us a, supposedly through the social contract through like uh, an aggregation of our anxieties that is then imputed to the state which bears those contradictions and then supposedly provides peace and security, but also while maintaining insecurity. It never deals with the true root causes of the insecurity. It actually maintains the insecurity by maintaining its role as the securer, you know? And the domination of the religion makes it so much easier. This is a case that is happening in my country because the religion is like a, like a good weapon. Hmm. The domination of the religion makes... Uh, um, makes them to kind of like increase their power because they're believing that you cannot realize your own benefit and the word of one who recognize that and we're trying to like lead you to your benefit. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's where the and ones... And that cause fear and when yeah. people... Get, Independence. Get, get, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Get, exactly, and that caused too much fear among the people. Mm. And when you having that, you're dealing with this destructing destructive feeling of the fear as what we said in Spinoza like hmm. you, it prevents you from feeling of from experiencing the human freedom because you cannot act 
And that's what is happening in my country. Like people couldn't make any action. Hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a really they were scared and they didn't yeah. take any action. And and if you want to take a, a action, as we see in our human condition, you need to uh, jeopardize your private realm for the sake of the states. And hopefully, and this is the something that happens like the, the last two days in my country. Like people are so mad, they don't care about their private life anymore, and they want to take action. And they don't care if they kick out the university or mm. get killed by the security guards or whatever. It doesn't matter anymore. Like we're mad, and we want to do something. Mm. So let's go to the street and mm. do ever what you know yeah, what yeah. we can do. And I think that's a good thing about that is happening it's mm. sad it's tragic it comes from the tragedy and anger but it's still it's a good thing that eventually happens you know mm. yeah there's a there's a there's a good marxist critique here um that it's like the state takes on that role of the god right that uh, mm -hmm. that we've created and we've reified and then now we allow to dominate us and of course then there's also direct domination as well but um there's a sense in which we subordinate ourselves for the sake of security to these external powers, and then you submit yourself to it, and it's a really—it's a way that you can you can weaponize that trust or that faith that is that is kind of like seeded over to that centralized, projected state mm -hmm. authority or um, theological authority in the state or in the in like the church or something like that. What were you going to say, Troy? I think I cut you off. No, no, I just had a, a, another question I wanted to get in before we end up uh, finishing our conversation here. Yeah, go ahead. So you know, we're talking a little bit here about you know, material interests and being on brand um, with this stuff, right? But I want to go off brand for a second. Um, and you mentioned earlier about uh, loving your country. And that's, you know, people say that you know, offhand. But is there something unique and different about being Iranian or having you know, Persian history and culture behind you, you know, thousands of years of that culture? Because um, coming from America, we, we don't have much of a... a a sort of historic historical culture, historically sort of informed culture, and you know, I'm I'm Italian, but you know, I know fuck all about like Italian history or anything like that, or have any connection with that mm. kind of world, right? So, um, I'm wondering if there's a different experience coming from that. I mean, there was this. This is all informed because there was this great tweet that I saw the other day from like an Iranian. I think it was an, a dentist, and he said something like, um, you know. Uh, America attacks one of our, you know, uh, cultural, uh, culturally important and significant leaders. What, what are we supposed to do in response? Like, what's proportional? Are we supposed to kill SpongeBob or Spider Man? Because America just doesn't have any sort of like, you know, significant leadership or you know, any sort of history that you can um, fall back on or make proportional to to Iran and Iranian and Persian history. Is there something different about that experience that we Americans just won't really understand? Yeah, I think I pointed out earlier as well. Like. Uh something that people don't understand here, I mean, at least in Western countries, that they think it's something normal and it's just not, <laughs> yeah, it's not normal. It's not normal and it's not okay. And it was never like that. We always had that kind of like stable condition, you know, like not always, but, you know, we would be able to survive. Is it attached to the, just the thousands of years of history that is passed down through you know, not just religious tradition, but cultural tradition, and like I'm, I'm just because learning. Our yeah. culture is kind of associated with that religion. 
Yeah. So you cannot really make that distinction recent, between right? our religion and culture. But more recent, By recent, like, I mean like a, a thing couple like thousand hundred, years. yeah, almost a couple thousand, yeah. not quite, but like yeah. fourteen hundred years or something like that. But like, yeah, Persian culture goes back. Yeah, that's why we prefer like some Iranian people prefer to come themselves Persian rather than Iranian, right? Because they kind of like say they want to more emphasize on a race than a right. country because yeah. the country is like kind of like bound with that religion concepts and people don't yeah. want that. Like, and like the like, we're Persian, like we have yeah, a longer Persian, history. Right. Like the language too. Some people say we speak Farsi, and some people are like no, no, we speak Persian. We speak Persian exactly. And there's there's yeah. a, that that matters and. I, because one of them implies one thing and one of them implies another yeah. thing and yeah. <laughs> yeah and this is something that they're really proud of and mm. uh, they don't want to like their history get limited to their religion and yeah i feel like it was i saw it similar to the 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 anecdote that you gave troy about the the dentist where like like who are we going to assassinate that's the equivalent of uh, of Soleimani. i saw someone that was like when trump was saying like oh we're, we're going to attack your cultural sites and then someone was like, well, what would re Iran do to retaliate, to attack a cultural site? Blow up a McDonald's? Bomb <laughs> Wendy's? Yeah. 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 Like, like what, what, what would the equivalent be? And, and it's funny, but there is something kind of serious about that. Like, when you talk, I wonder how it would affect, like, there was a church uh, that got, it, no, what was it, a church? I can't remember what it was. But it was in Iraq. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It was in Syria. And it was like an ancient holy site that was, you know, thousands of years old or a thousand years old or whatever it was. And it had gotten uh, destroyed in one of the bombings, right? And there was, um, there were some like biblical scholars and like uh, Old Testament scholars. And I think even like Muslim scholars who they all found immense value in this site. And they were so outraged at the destruction of this, of this site. And I wonder if there's something... Like, like when a building that was built in the 70s gets bombed or gets destroyed, that's one thing. You know, if a cafe gets bombed, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about something that has cultural, religious, like in the depths of your being and in the constitution of your identity type of significance, and that gets destroyed. Yeah, I mean, what does that supposed to mean? And then he acts, Trump like acts like that. He's kind of like support Iranian people. I mean, look at as he he's two yeah. I've always supported yeah, you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And and why you want to destroy our culture sites? This is something belongs to our identity. Yeah. This is something that genuinely belongs to people. Maybe that's the only thing that belongs to the people. And why you want to ruin that? I mean, how dare you even mention that? This is so disrespectful. But, but, but Trump, see, this is the thing. This is what's so crazy. Trump is the embodiment of an economic ideology. For him, nothing matters except for the deals that you can make and the money. So for him, a cultural site, like... Yeah, it just doesn't he, mean anything. Doesn't fuck it. For him, it's like, oh, fuck it. Who cares? Like, I'll wipe it out because it doesn't really matter. But this is a shame. I mean, he's a yeah. president, for God's sake. And <laughs> Yeah. I mean, of course, like he doesn't see the value in the culture side, but at least he knows that this is something that belongs to people, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not only a way of destroying, doing like a, a kind of cultural genocide, right? But it's destroying uh, cultural artifacts. But also, it, it really, for especially for like, Trump and, and his ilk, it's, you know, how, well, how much money do you make from these cultural sites? Like from visitors and tourists who come to see him, right? So that's, right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attack those because that's going to hurt your, your economically the most, right? It's almost blind to the even importance um, of those sites such that it's almost like a, a like a war crime by accident 
so that maybe he could even say, mm. I'm, I'm like, yeah, I've always supported the Iranian people out of one side of his mouth while also threatening to like destroy their culture on the other side of his mouth and somehow yeah. hold these things in tension. And one more thing, like if he like wanted to like destroy the, the cultural side, this is something that the government, that makes our government so much happier. Oh, yeah. But that, yeah, like this is because they never care about our cultural sides. They st- they st- always steal things from the I don't know the, the palaces and everything that belongs to the Shah. Like every time that I go and visit the Shah Palace, like something is missing every time. I was hmm. like, <laughs> this guy was poor. Like, <laughs> hmm. Hmm. so yeah, this is something that the government would totally take advantage of. And this is what it seems weird that they both acting like they're they both are totally against the people. And this is something that is pretty obvious. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, Troy, uh, do you have any last questions, comments, or anything before we go ahead and wrap up? Yeah, I mean, I think just to sum up, one thing that I'm really taking from all this is just the thing we were most myopic about uh, as Americans in 2001 through 2003 was how our actions and our moral outrage over 9-11 would affect people outside of our normal purview. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died because of decisions that we made politically. And that almost never gets talked about. It's usually talked about, you know, the American soldiers who died and the money that was spent. And those things just pale in comparison. The money that was spent pales in comparison. And the lives that were lost on the American side, in terms of number, pale in comparison to the Iraqis who died. And then, of course, people in Syria and people in Yemen and everywhere else. And our actions over the last, you know, 30 years, along with the Iranian government, has had, you know, a negative effect on the people of Iran, and we need to keep them as the forefront of our moral concern. Our decisions need to first and foremost take the people who will be affected the most by these actions as the you know the key factor in our decision making. And it's just so often not the case in American media. Those things are just never brought up. It's only ever about the money that's spent or about the American. Um, uh, the suffering that will, that will be undergone by American soldiers or American families. And we need to keep the people who will be most affected in view. Hmm. Yeah, I think for me, the thing that that I, I think I kind of have intuited for a while, but now kind of in, in having this conversation, I'm starting to get a better grasp on, on my own thoughts about it, is that maybe we're viewing this all wrong. We tend to think of these people as warring parties. This government is against that government. But maybe there's some, Maybe it's more complex than that. Like, yeah, at one level they're against each other, but in another level they need each other. And they almost get off on this. Exactly. You know? Um, and I, I don't think that they're standing behind secret doors, like shaking hands, saying like, okay, we're going to do this, and then we're going to fuck each other up, and then we're going to lie, but really, we're, we're, we're homies, right? And they fist, they, they fist bump. I don't think it's like that. It's much more ideological. It's much more habitual. It's structural. But there is a sense in which they enjoy each other. Exactly. And they enjoy each other at the cost, again, now this yeah, goes to like choice, but game. at the cost of the people. Yeah. yeah. It's like a funny game for them. Yeah, exactly. Not yeah, it's Lakers enjoying. versus Celtics, really but people die, yeah. That battle. What's that, dude? I say it's Lakers versus Celtics, but people die. Like it's a it's a rivalry for the people that are in power all the time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to say? Is there anything we can do? Um, 
I'm not sure about what should we do. Like yeah. uh, this, like um, I don't know how would I be able to contribute. Yeah, it's not like we can throw money and donate I'm, donate to this cause, and this will change <laughs> our futures. It's not like that. yeah. I don't really believe in donation. And I don't yeah, yeah, yeah. That, so. <laughs> How can we start the Marxist revolution? I and know. I know. <laughs> that's what we want to know. You I could mean, donate to any... the only candidate who's pledged to not <laughs> yeah. engage in war with Iran unequivocally. Oh, yeah. yeah. I wonder who that candidate is. Bernie, baby, Bernie, 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is my major concern that I'm always asking myself, how would I be able to contribute and mm. take action? And I didn't reach the answer yet. Mm. I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, what I wanted to say that I'm really appreciate that you both guys, uh, because I've tried to like make this conversation about these issues with my friends and classmates, and they weren't really like, hmm, I don't know, like they weren't really concerned. As I said, they everything, they think it's like something normal, and that kind of like irritates me. It really frustrates yeah. me. Like, was no one to talk about this issue uh, with here? But I'm so glad that you guys are concerned and you make this happen, and you give cool. me the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The last thing I'll say, I always say it's the last thing I'll say, and then I keep fucking talking, by the way. <laughs> um, but I was talking about this with uh, another uh, Persian friend, Darius, the oh. other day, who's been on the podcast. Yeah. Um, but I was talking with him about this, um, and I told him something that he was like, are you fucking kidding me? I can remember conversations that I've had with people. And I think this is very common if you even watch, especially conservative American media, the assumption that it's normal, that the chaos in the Middle East is yeah. normal, is a, it's a language of dehumanization, and it's mm -hmm. like an animalization, mm -hmm. that, yeah, they're just, they do that. And this is what I told Darius. I said, this is, people that have been very close to me in my life have said this, that's like, oh, look at them. They're just killing each other. And it's this assumption that's like, that's just what they do. Mm -hmm. They just, they kill their own people because they're not human. They're not like us. We don't do that. But it's normal there. They kill each other. They're, they're killing their own people is the language that's used. And it's a language of dehumanization, mm -hmm. of animalization. Okay. And it's so prominent and it's so subtle. Even, even if you watch someone like, uh, oh, like a fucking, the, the right winger that everybody's in love with right now um, on the left, Tucker mm -hmm. Carlson, right? <laughs> even he will say like, you know, look at them. They're doing this. You know, they're, they're killing their own people. And we'll use that kind of language because there's just this assumption, I think, within especially conservative media, that 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 brown people in the Middle East are uncivilized. Yeah, and, and it's not just yeah. conservatives. Bill Maher does it too. Bill, this oh, is fucking, a stupid yeah. idea because yeah. this is stupid. This idea comes from the racism. That means that they're yeah. they're racist. Right. You know? They're and, culturally and being a racist, the yeah. racism comes from the stupidity. So in conclusion, I'm going to say they're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amen yeah. to that. Yeah, because there's this cultural supremacy that, like, that we have figured it out. Like that's the Bill Maher line, right? That, that we've figured it out. We have ditched our backwards religions and our backwards politics, and mm. we have achieved that higher level of evolution, but they have not. Mm. And um, I feel like it's very, very hegemonic at at an ideological level. And it's really easy to just reproduce that, that sensibility towards other people. And it just becomes a part of your life, you know? Yeah. And I think that a lot of Americans um, are exposed to that type of logic. And I think a, a lot of Americans 
And I would imagine a lot of Australians, as a matter of fact, I know a lot of Australians, um, they embody that and they kind of take that into their own disposition to the world, you know? Oh. All right, I guess that's the last thing I'll say. Troy, you good? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. it this has been really <laughs> a wonderful you. way to engage in this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry about the whole conversation. I was a bit nervous and I wasn't quite able to clearly express myself. No, but at the same time, not really in a, a good situation. So there is so much going on in my mind and I don't know how to structure uh, my argument and the things I wanted to say. So. Well, then, like I yeah. always tell our guests, then it's. <laughs> sorry for being a terrible representative. No, no, no not at all. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. This yeah. is. This will be part one of maybe a part two. <laughs> you, you can structure your thoughts and then you can be like, I should have said this. And then you know what? Come back on and you can say that next time. Yeah, that would okay. be great then. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So um, now we're going to be moving on, changing gears into a different uh, set of ideas. Now we're going to be talking about something that brings us joy in the world, and it's called the Sticky Leaves. This is the segment where one of us gets to express beautifully the things that are lighting their soul ablaze in a world that is potentially a dark, meaningless void heading towards the surety of heat death. So, um, <laughs> Troy, what is your Sticky Leaves? What is giving you meaning as we hurl towards demise. So, <laughs> so I read something pretty cool um, at the end of the year of 2019 that I wanted to share with you and with the audience, and then even involve a little bit of my own uh, creative input. So do you know the blog Daily Noose? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a great blog run by uh, Justin Weinberg, and um, it basically just sums up a lot of philosophy news and articles and blog posts and various things that happen throughout the week. Uh, and it's, it you know, ranges from analytic to continental philosophy and critical theory and everywhere in between. So it's it's pretty comprehensive, and I really enjoy reading it. And uh, they had a guest post from a philosophy uh, grad student at the University of Toronto, uh, whose name is if I'm, I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing this correctly, but it's Eliran Haziza, and uh, uh, he or she ran we developed this like software program that would read over a bunch of different journal articles. I think something like three thousand journal articles. Um, from philosophy journals, top philosophy journals in 2019, and looked for haikus mm. in the midst of them. This software program would look for haikus in these uh, journal articles. And uh, Eli Ron did this and came up with thousands, I think, but then whittled it down to a few hundred and then published the top 25 or so of them uh, on Daily News. And so I wanted to read some of my favorite of them and then give you my own philosophy haiku, because I think these are kind of beautiful and lovely and uh, much more enjoyable to read than, than typical philosophy with its, you know, erudition and long-windedness and whatnot. So here are some of the, my favorite philosophy haikus from this blog post. Number one, okay. our world is but one of a plurality of possible worlds. That's from Byron Simmons in the article, Fundamental Non-Qualitative Properties. <laughs> Number two, I'm grateful to an anonymous reviewer for pointing this out. <laughs> That's from Casey Rebecca Johnson's article, oh Investigating God. Illocutionary Monism. Did this get popular on Twitter, by the way? Because I didn't see this. I, I don't think so. I, it came up on the blog in my RSS feed. So 
Uh, here's number three. Yeah. Maybe coming up with the concept of race was no good for anyone. That's from Jared Riggs in the review of um, an article, Nietzsche's Constructivism. Number four, Carl, hating David and wanting him dead, pushes David in the lake. <laughs> oh, God, that's an analytic paper for sure. 100%. That's a thought experiment. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a thought experiment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's from Kimberly Kessler-Furzon's article, The Ontological Distinction in a War. So, yeah, an analytic <laughs> uh, ethics paper for sure. Yep. Number five. Things go from strange to stranger when we think about justification. That's just Ooh, beautiful. I like that one. I love that. <laughs> That's from a guy named Clayton Littlejohn and uh, co-author Julian Dutance, their article, Justification, Knowledge, and Normality. A couple more. Number six. Imagine someone who wants to buy a modern, elegant kettle. <laughs> <laughs> That might be my favorite one. <laughs> you know why these are good? Because some of them are kind of absurd. Like, that's kind of absurd. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of absurd, but it, it, you could actually, like, come up with some elegant allegorical interpretation for it, which is yeah. amazing. <laughs> uh. That's from uh, Claudia Picasso Jacques' article, Our Mental Representations, un- Under Determinancy Free. Ah, excuse me. And then number seven, I must realize that the bear is after me before I can flee. That's some deep like, shit, man. I like that one. That sounds like some sort of like ancient Native American wisdom. Yeah, and it's also just like straight up conceptual analysis of what constitutes fleeing. <laughs> what are the epistemic <laughs> conditions of fleeing, right? It's so good. And that's from uh, Leah Solge's article, The Essential Non-Indexical. Dude, I can literally, I can, I hear that in a movie. Like some guy is talking with a child and they're like, hey, there's an ancient proverb. One must recognize the bear is chasing them before one can flee. Exactly. It's like, um, what was the name of the, um, the master in Kill Bill that trained the bride? Yes. Yes, that's right. Yes. And he strokes the super long mustache after saying it. Totally. Okay, so now here's my haiku. All right, you ready for this? Wait, what do you mean your haiku? I made one. Oh, perfect. Okay. Just for this occasion. Okay. Owls at Dawn podcast. Austin and Troy bullshitting since days of M-Dub. Aw, that needs to be on a shirt. (laughs) That gets me all emotional. That's very sentimental. I like that. Super sentimental. We should make that our new our new uh, tagline or subtitle or whatever. That's actually fucking cool, man. Aw, you're a poet. (laughs) You know what the thing is? I think we shit on haiku because they've kind of become like this cultural funny thing, right? Like that people are like, oh, we can make a a haiku about whatever. Um, But I think they're actually a really lovely, and I don't know shit about the history of haiku. I learned about it years ago in some sort of lit class or whatever. But I think they're actually really something beautiful about the condensity and the, the mixed with like the mathematics of it because it's a simple formula that is repeated over and over again. Kind of like, you know, like poetry nerds get into rhyme and meter and it's like, oh, when it's this and this and like the structure of it, the math structure, there's something kind of lovely about haiku as well. And I feel like if you just bathed in haiku over and over and over again, you would really start to kind of, I don't know, almost become enchanted by the mathesis of it. Yeah, dude, it is, it's like, obviously the rhythm to it is kind of naturally beautiful, I think. 
and it's prone mm. to like depth, right? But then it's also just mastering the ability to write a sentence. Because that's mm. what all haiku is, right? It's a really great sentence. Um, you know, kind of free context and so you can import whatever meaning you want onto it and whatnot, right? But mastering the ability to write a sentence is kind of important for constructing any sort of meaningful um, communication or creation at all, right? So yeah, it's just like the beauty of a sentence. Mm. Yeah. Imagine someone wanting to buy an elegant kettle. <laughs> Great fucking sentence. It is a good sentence. <laughs> I know. I wonder if you become a really good haiku writer, if it actually would improve your writing. That's interesting. Practice haiku so you can make really, really good uh, concluding sentences in your paragraph. Yeah. Yeah, because that's <laughs> one of my goals for 2020 is just to really improve my writing. I'm I'm starting to realize how many bad habits I have picked up because of grad school and reading a lot of continental philosophy. Just the jargon and speaking so conceptually and abstruse. And I know what I'm saying because I'm laterally referring to this body of literature. But somebody who isn't like who hasn't had the exact same trajectory or almost near same ex trajectory as me wouldn't quite get all of these like like these allusions that I'm making and these side swipes that I'm making that I think are super clever and make a text really rich and interesting in writing. It's like, yeah, but you got to fucking like lead their hand a little bit, you know, like you got to, you got to lead them along the path. You got to, you got to not be so inside baseball. And so I'm really trying to learn how to just be a little bit more to use the word analytical um, in, in my, I guess, academic -y analytical writing. Yeah, we've talked about this before, I think, on the podcast several times, that there's such a, a need to just create this great quantity of writing and text. Mm. And that really, I think, counts against the need for thinking analytically and deeply about a short amount of text and dedicating yeah. time to unearthing meaning and use for it. And that, you know, haiku is a, a good way of, you know, just doing that. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. It does seem it, you know? Yeah. In another universe, there is a version of Austin that is every day practicing haiku writing to implement <laughs> into his philosophical and political uh, whatnot. A nearby pieces. possible world, yeah. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. It's too bad he can't report back to me and tell me, dude, it actually is really great. You need to implement it in this world. Wouldn't that be cool if we could yeah, communicate with our uh, – isn't that the whole point of like fantasizing about multiverse? According to Jet Li, yeah, but uh, unfortunately that's philosophically <laughs> uh, pretty shallow. Ah, uh, well. Yeah. <laughs> possible worlds are, you know, or merely possible worlds are, you know, possible, not actual. Gosh dang it. Ah, uh, well. Well, cool, man. So uh, people can find the, the blog, too, just at Daily News? Yeah, we'll, um, we'll put the URL in the uh, episode description. Perfect. Well, sweet. Well, I guess go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Yeah, dude? Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Well, um, obviously, we want to give a shout out to... Uh, and thank our guest again for coming on and helping us work through some things and uh, give us some information and hopefully it kind of um, incites you out there who are listening to do some more digging, more research, more critical thinking on your own. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us. Um, we can try to, you know, either point you in the right direction to other places where you can get more information or we can try to answer the best we can. You can email us at owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter owls underscore at underscore dawn you can follow us on insta owls underscore at underscore dawn obviously both troy and i are active on twitter relatively active on relatively, twitter yeah <laughs> you're relatively active i'm pretty active on twitter um 
So you can follow us there, um, Insta, you can hit us up on Facebook, whatever. Um, just reach out if you feel the desire to chat. Go to engineswim.com and use the promo code OWLS at checkout to get 20% off your fitness gear. And remember, the prices are in Aussie dollars, which means that you get that exchange rate discount too if you're not in Australia. If you're in the UK or US, then your money is extra like 20% on top of the 20% that you get off. So fuck, man. Deals upon deals upon deals. So go check that shit out for sure. And don't forget to go and support us on patreon.com slash Dawn if you have the means. Sweet. Well, I think that's pretty much everything we got to say, unless there's anything you want to add. Just one more thing, dude. What's that? Dasta Dani Americanski. Yeah.